0: Hey everyone, Emery and Kelsey here. Welcome to our podcast, Hidden Figures of Women, for Women, by Women. As two women majoring
1: in international relations, we have realized that many international affairs are often framed, written and discussed through the perspectives of men.
0: This podcast is devoted to the significant and oftentimes overlooked role that women play in shaping, changing and participating in these contemporary global issues. From
1: political representation to economic development, Hidden Figures seeks to explore the unique challenges women face and the different perspectives we bring to the table.
0: We would like to thank the Keck Center for International and Strategic Studies at Claremont McKenna College for supporting this podcast and digital artist Sabrina Stone for drawing our cover art.
1: This podcast will be divided into two parts. First, we will interview our guest, CIA senior analyst Gina Bennett. Then we will summarize our thoughts by reflecting on the interview, books, and our research.
0: This week's episode focusing on the role of women in national security efforts is inspired by our acknowledgement that our lifespan of less than 20 years is often thought of as living in a post-9-11 world.
1: Every year since September 11th, 2001, the way that Americans perceive national security has never been the same. National polls have shown that about 75% of Americans believe that strengthening national security against terrorism should be a top priority
0: of the White House. National security threats and current events consistently make the front pages of newspapers with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security in response to 9-11, headlines about the shooting of Osama bin Laden, the founder of the pan-Islamic militant organization al-Qaeda, and controversial debates about Edward Snowden's whistleblowing on the National Security Agency's surveillance, just to name a few.
1: As such, in today's episode, we want to address the current national security threats facing the U.S., and more importantly, the role women play in this critical aspect of international relations.
0: For today's podcast, we will be interviewing Gina Bennett, who is a long-standing member of the CIA's Senior Analytics Service and is currently on assignment as the Senior Counterterrorism Advisor and Directorate of Strategic Operational Planning in the National Counterterrorism Center.
1: Previously, Gina Bennett held the position of Deputy National Intelligence Officer for Transnational Threats, the CIA staff member of National Commission on Terrorism, and a variety of other positions in Washington, D.C. that focuses on aspects of terrorism. Ms. Bennett is well known for her analysis in the 1993 report that warned the U.S. of Osama bin Laden and his extremist movement, as well as the 2006 National Intelligence Estimate, Trends in Global Terrorism Implications for
0: the U.S miss bennett appeared in a 2015 documentary called the spy masters that highlighted the real work that cia analysts do gina bennett is also the author of three books
1: national security mom why going soft will make america strong america needs a time out national security mom 2," and how kids can be good citizens
0: hi miss bennett thank you so much for joining us today with that, I'm just going to go ahead and ask the first
2: question. So your paper published in 1993 uh, would serve as the first uh, published strategic warning of what would later be called the global jihadist movement and of Osama bin Laden. Could you expand on what you wrote in your report and with writing your report, would you have ever imagined that the movement and threat you were writing about would culminate into first 9-11 And second, a U.S. military response that would end up characterizing an entire decade of U.S. foreign policy and a war on terrorism. Uh, Published strategic warning of what would later be called the global jihadist movement and of Osama bin Laden. Could you expand on what you wrote in your report? And with writing your report, would you have ever imagined that the movement and threat you were writing about would culminate into first 9-11, And second, a U.S. military response that would end up characterizing an entire decade of U.S. foreign policy and a war on terrorism.
3: Sure. So uh, I'll answer the second question first. Absolutely no, I did not imagine any of that. Um, But to start with the issue of, or the question of what was in that paper, I think it's important to understand that it was, it itself was the result of looking at some longer term trends that had occurred through the 70s and the 80s, um, mainly the, the, the failure of Arab nationalism as a political movement in the Muslim majority Middle East, uh, the rise of course of uh, the Islamic Republic in Iran, and then the uh, invasion of Afghanistan by what was then the Soviet Union, and this overwhelming response by Muslims from around the world, in In trying to uh, expel the Soviet troops from Afghanistan now that that war was supported by a lot of external actors to include the United States in support of the Afghans and their you know, freedom um, trying to push back a, the foreign invasion by the Soviet Union uh, so you know it's, it, it didn 't just come out of the blue um, there was a lot of context behind it and What I noticed as a very young analyst who knew absolutely nothing, which was really the most helpful aspect, is that I I didn't have any preconceived notions or assumptions about how the world was supposed to work or how the Middle East was supposed to work or even how terrorism was supposed to work. So for me, I started seeing this um, unusual activity in terms of... People who had been volunteering, you know, men who had volunteered to fight in Afghanistan from other countries, who were leaving when the Soviet troops pulled out in 1989, and you know, really starting to watch that movement from '89 until '92, '93 time frame when I first wrote that report. Um, again, because I didn't, you know, we'd never seen this before. We didn't know what we were looking for, so it, it was just that objective tracking of. Of what was happening that led to some early conclusions about a movement growing, one that you know wanted to infuse um, new forms of revolutionary government across the the Middle East and South Asia with um, with this sort of Mujahideen, the holy warrior experience from Afghanistan. So um, you know a lot of a lot of that is just again understanding the longer context seeing some anomalies as they unfold and then being able to explain it. It's a lot harder though, you know, you know it's, it's easier and not even and this is not easy. It's easier to look back and say, "Hey, I think this is going on." It's a lot harder to say, "I think this is where this could go." So, you know, seeing it in the early 1990s Culminating into 9/11, or our response? No, I couldn't possibly. Unless they issue crystal balls, I couldn't possibly have seen all of that.
0: Um, yeah. So our next question um, is a little bit like different from that, a little bit separate. But you write that one of the elements of succeeding in uncovering terror spotting is keeping our intelligence activities a secret. Um, but in your book, you also say that our country's security depends on our values and principles of democracy and our commitment to them. Evidently, there seems to be a need to recognize uh, some sort of balance between realistically assessing a threat and prioritizing core values of democracy, like government transparency. How do you, sa- how do you decide where that line is in order to accurately respond to a threat? And do you think there are times when the US government might have crossed that line and may have exaggerated a
3: threat So um it's a lot to unpack with this. It's a very good question. Yeah. <laughs> uh I think just to start with the the beginning, I think premise of what you're asking, and it's a really good question because transparency and secrecy don't seem to go along very well. But I think we have we have a very delicate balance in our in our government system with checks and balances and the separation of powers across the three branches. And if you want to consider the media to some extent, the fourth branch of government, I, I mean, I, I tend to, um, but it's important to see, I think that in, you know, in my observation from over 30 years in this business now, the actual gathering of the intelligence, the information and and for the most part, the content does need to be kept a secret. Um, the purpose for that is is so that the people who are involved can remain safe. And that's not. And I'm not just talking about Americans who are involved in it, but we're also talking about the people on the other side who are risking their lives to give us information of a warning nature. And you know, we want to protect them. But I think the how we go about gathering is what does deserve the scrutiny in particular. And that's one of the reasons why we have um, intelligence oversight committees in both the House and the Senate. And their scrutiny of how the intelligence community gathers that information is extremely important. And I think it's very, very valuable to a democracy because, you know, at the end of the day, like you're saying, we know what we need to, we know the information that we need to have. We know the information that we believe we, we need to have, which is not always the same thing. Um, and we know some methods for gathering it. But sometimes I think it's important that the American people have a conduit, again, mostly through the oversight committees for saying, hey, we don't want you to gather it that way we're okay with accepting the risk of not knowing certain things so as not to cheapen American principles and, and, you know, and our values. So I think that's an important role of the um, oversight committees. I don't appreciate leaks obviously um, because there are ways of making information or channeling information or, Methods of gathering intelligence or conducting intelligence activities that can go to the oversight committees for the appropriate scrutiny and still protect the process and the people involved. Um, You know, you've heard of, of course of the whistleblower act, but we have a whole bunch of methods for doing that. And those are the appropriate ways to do it, not going straight to the media. When those leaks do occur, of course, they shine a light on things and it starts a conversation. Um, I'm not opposed to when the conversations occur. Uh, I embrace the idea that Americans have the right and should take it as a responsibility to tell us how we should conduct our business because ultimately we're doing it for America. If we're not doing it the right way, then we shouldn't. Um, I teach an ethics class at Georgetown for this very reason. It's, you know, it's ethics and intelligence because I believe it's extremely important for folks in national security, but particularly in the intelligence arena, to understand that this isn't the ends justify the means. That's that's not how we approach this. Yes, we are trying to prevent war. We are trying to prevent strategic surprise that is damaging to our country and to innocent lives. But that doesn't mean that every means of gaining that information is justifiable in a democracy. So we, um, when I'm I'm teaching that class, I, I fall back a lot on Marcus Cicero because he, you know, not only was he into the safety and the security of the people, but, you know, he also warned that there are some things that the people, the state, would not want done for her in the name of security because those would just be egregious activities. So I think there's a balance to be struck
2: that sounds like such an interesting class I would like to be part of that but well, um <laughs> come to Georgetown grad school <laughs> maybe maybe if you know all goes well and they graduate on time from first <laughs> undergrad with everything yeah. going on uh, but in your previous uh, answer you were talking a bit about you know there not everything justifies not the ends don't always justify the means in terms of data gathering and like prevention um, but I think one thing that you wrote in your book that was really interesting is that, you know, no matter how much we spend on counterterrorism, there will always be things that we miss and that we shouldn't be, you know, prioritizing always maybe prevention, but also kind of looking into long, longer term cures. I think the quote you wrote was, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Yeah. So how can the US government shift its attention to cure, like quote unquote, curing these national security threats, you know, instead of preventing them? And what does this cure look like in practice
3: yeah no and um another great question um yeah i think the the first thing the first important part of that is recognizing that not all um things are the same and i guess what i mean by that is you know a common cold is not the same thing as a flu and a flu is certainly not the same thing as covid so not all threats are created equal either and you know, first part is recognizing that there are a lot of things that are not curable. Uh, You know, in my opinion, terrorism is, you know, it's a tactic. It's a political tactic. It's obviously violent and brutal and and tragic when it occurs. It's not a curable thing. It is a part of the human condition and just as disease and um, hunger and You know, lack of water, all of these things are parts of the human condition. They're not problems to be fixed or diseases to be cured in that sense. And so I think, you know, a lot of it is helping America right size its expectation of what a government can and should do when it comes to preventing all forms of political violence. It's just not possible. So, you know, that's one part of it. The other part is, his i mm, this is a little difficult to explain because it's it's pretty complicated and it would take a long time to really (laughs) explain it thoroughly so i apologize if this isn't helpful but i think with the 9 11 attacks in 2001 and because of the way osama bin laden who was the leader of al-qaeda at the time conveyed his purpose and his agenda there was a misunderstanding that terrorism just writ large was not only an existential threat, but also something that had, was not rational. Um, And, and that is an incorrect understanding of terrorism. Terrorism is a very political phenomenon. So if you set aside for a moment, the, Uh, the unthinkable activity, you know, the brutal murdering of innocent people and understand that there's a huge political phenomenon behind it that includes far more people who do not believe in violence, but who are protesting or aggrieved in some way. There's a whole lot of other solution there. Um, but we get so fixated on the the symptoms, in other words, you know the terrorists themselves and the violence, and it's understandable we want to stop that. But if you don't address the pool that that is coming from uh, you will you will always have the terrorists so I think it's you know it's recognizing that good governance in other parts of the world, including our own, is what ultimately can prevent terrorism, nothing else. But if yeah, that's part, I mean, if there's additional explanation you need, let me know. So it's linking a lot of thoughts together.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you're not gonna be able to comprehensively explain all of that to us. It'd probably take an entire lecture. Um, but yeah, we did get a little bit of that in your book as well. Um And one reason that you cited for these, like building of terrorist groups and kind of it being a political phenomenon is a perception that US foreign policies are anti-Islamic. So do you think that the US response to 9-11 actually straightened this perception in the Islamic world? And do you think that the Trump administration is strengthening those perceptions today and like what we might be able to do differently in the future?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think we, we, have strengthened the narrative, um, and the perception by almost walking into the, to the trap that Al Qaeda originally set, um, in, in, on 9-11 and even before for that matter. So, I, I mean, if I were in the Muslim world and just a, you know, regular old citizen watching, watching America, I would, I would think that we are, are foes of the Middle East as well, looking at all of our activity. Um, But I think it's more important, more importantly, it's not, it's not just our military presence that has been built up over the last 20 years. It's the skewing of, of our conversation with Middle East populations and, and governments for that matter, both, um, and talking entirely about security and a physical and military and, you know, violent, nonviolent sense versus the security of of human dignity and the security of people to be able to raise their families and find gainful employment and feel valued in their own society and listened to by their own government. I mean, these are, these are things that are so much more important in many ways than, than life and death. And we don't have any more conversations, I think in our middle East foreign policy about, governance and the contract that should exist between the governor and the governed in any country. And that is certainly very much in keeping with Islam in terms of of its political outlook. Uh, It requires a benign ruler and the consent of the governed. And so it's not the same form of democracy that we we have here in the United States, but it is not um, an autocracy or a religious uh, republic it is it is still a conversation between citizens and those who are in positions of power to make the decisions about their lives so we don't talk about that anymore and i think that that is um, one of the main reasons why we've skewed the perception because we're we're not having a conversation about the things that are important to the vast majority of the people
2: Yeah, so you talk um, about the importance of, you know, the U.S. pushing forward good governance through their, you know, Middle East foreign policy or their other foreign policy initiatives. But um, in reality, like, I know that the U.S. kind of struggles with this a lot because, for example, the U.S. sometimes support regimes such as Egypt and Libya because, you know, they're afraid that anti-U.S. extremists might actually win the popular election um, if democracy were allowed to. They actually kind of indirectly support these autocratic rulers, Um, and sometimes it's just kind of as simple as the US cannot afford to lose its allies in the region, um, perhaps like Saudi Arabia for oil. But I guess my question is, are there any realistic options for the US in honoring its ideal to promote good, uh, good governance and democracy around the world while still ensuring national security in regions such as the Middle East? So how can the US maintain serious practical considerations of alliances and oil resources without destroying its credibility as the global champion of democracy?
3: Yeah, that's a, that's an easy question right there. No problem. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's a really tough one. Look, I I mean, nobody has the solution. If somebody did have the solution, I would think we would be seeing it already. I can only offer you my take on it based on, again, 30 years of being very intimately involved in counterterrorism, national security policy on, and activities largely with the Middle East. You know, I like to look at the assumptions there and just challenge them. Because when, you know, the definition of insanity, when you keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different outcome, well, that's what we've been doing for a really long time. And my feeling is, I think it's an assumption that we can't afford to lose partners in the Middle East. I don't personally believe that that is the case. For one thing, I'm not sure, though these so-called partners are really our allies in the way we think they are. Um, I realize there's great risks in losing some of those those expedient friendships, but um, again, ends justify means or, or are means really important? I think recognizing that especially in the last 20 years, we have sold out the concept of self-determination of people um, for what we believe is expedient security with um, governments in the Middle East that are very repressive, that use our security assistance just to further entrench their own rule and um, secure their position so they don't have to listen to the oppositionists, no matter what, where they come from or whether they're secular or religious or anything else. Um, you know, that's a hard thing to gain back. We've, we've, in my opinion, we've sort of sold our soul there. And, you know, it takes an extraordinary amount of courage for any foreign policy expert or president or Congress to say, you know what, we're going to start expecting more of these leaderships in the Middle East. And if they don't, if they don't offer more to their own people, then we're not going to be friends. And, you know, we'll deal with the security ramifications of that. But in order for us to do that responsibly, because we are accountable to the American public and the U.S. taxpayer, they have to have a say in that too. You know, how much risk Americans are willing to take is important as well. But I think having the transparent conversation with, with America that the cycle we are in is a never-ending one. We are growing the extremist problem through our patronage of repressive governments in the Middle East. Um, so we're just going to continue this cycle forever. Is it dangerous to give up on, on some of them? Yeah. You know, you have to choose your danger here. So
2: Yeah, there's definitely loads more the U S could be doing in terms of pushing forward, you know, better, foreign policy in the Middle East and just kind of ensuring that the region is a more is a better environment um that perhaps doesn't kind of culminate in so much um instability and war but also there is like another side I guess of the coin that a lot of people perhaps would say is the case in terms of um, terrorism and I just wanted to talk a bit about it so some argue with like some would argue that yes, while a good governance obviously plays a huge role in kind of reducing this national security threat, there's also the argument that, you know, Islam, Islamic extremist groups will always, always be, um, will always just be there and view U.S. policies in direct contrast to Islam, to Islam, no matter what the U.S. does. Um, I think you mentioned this a bit in your book about the U.S. being the world's sole superpower and like with the advent of easier uh communication global communication there's like that new backdrop of envy envy that america cannot really control um because it's easy for much of the world to blame what is not going well for them on america um with that so while we america can do things to kind of increase its perception um increase its popularity in the middle east is this anti-islamic perception um perhaps that that fuels terrorism kind of a variable that America can't really control for the large part.
3: Yeah, no, of course we aren't going to be able to control, you can never control anybody's perception. But again, I think we have 20 years of not having a conversation that if we had another 20 years where we do have a conversation, I think that perception could shift. You're never going to be able to influence extremists of any ilk. Uh, It's just not possible. You're never going to be able to protect yourself from every single extremist who's willing to use violence to advocate their position or protest something that they um, feel is an existential threat to them. I mean, look, in the United States in the past year, you know, you look at in 2019, we've had more Americans killed by white supremacists and incel and, um, you know, misogynistic terrorism and other types in the United States than we have uh any terrorist that has been inspired by a foreign ideology so you know we have pretty impressive um law enforcement in this country and we can't stop extremists here so we're never going to be able to stop the entire extremist fringe but you know the, in in my mind the the problem has become that we have we have put so much emphasis time, energy, money, people on the tiny fringe and forgotten that the rest of the Middle East, the rest of the Muslims in the world, billions of people reject Al-Qaeda. They reject ISIS. They reject these solutions and they should be our friends, but we have really done very little to advance that friendship.
0: Yeah. So you talked, just now a little bit about like, you know, advancing these friendships with these, like a great majority of people. Um, but yeah, going forward, what other things do you think the US could do to ensure that we maybe like strengthen um pro-US sentiment or at least like friendliness with the US and Muslim world that our government and foreign policy has like not been doing in the past?
3: Uh well, you know, listening is a really good idea. Um it doesn't cost any money to listen um you know you know how when you when you when you have a problem and you go to a friend you don't want them to come up with a quick solution for you you want them to listen you want them to sympathize and empathize and be compassionate with you um that listening is a really important part and i don't think that we are able to do that kind of listening because we have all but destroyed the Department of State, which is you, you know was once this incredibly flourishing, wonderful organization that um, had such rich expertise and interaction in the world you know through its its diplomats and its civil service and you know post cold war it's like the United States decided it just didn't need to do that anymore in fact post cold War I feel like america decided hey we won this cold war we're the only great power out there democracy has won over communism we don't need to sell this idea anymore we don't need to advocate the benefits of democracy we don't we don't need to do that anymore everybody's got it that's not true it's just not true we have not been engaged in these very compelling time intensive, resource intensive conversations around the world with populations that most Americans don't even know exist and in hearing how they're struggling and understanding how the, the form of government that we prefer where the people have a, have, a, have a say in the solutions, the people have a say in setting direction the people have a say in determining how their taxes are spent. Um, it, we're not even advocating that anymore. It's it's like a been reduced to a bumper sticker or a tweet. It is it's it, it just can't work that way. Um, I don't think. I mean, I still believe not necessarily our form of democracy, you know, a democratic republic, but democracy itself, the concept of self-governing, is not a universal value but incredibly incredibly universal in the um appeal of it to any human being cuz everyone wants to be born and then be respected <laughs> so democracy as a form of government embraces that requirement of respect for the people so but we just have not really done any work. In my opinion, we've done very little other than, you know, I'm not saying that the diplomats in the state department haven't been doing it. Absolutely. They have And U S AID, of course, but they're so understaffed. They're so underfunded, um, completely underappreciated. And they have been since the end of the cold war. So that's, you know, it's, it's slow. It's not a quick, easy solution. I, you know, and America has to get over the idea that we have a quick, easy solution to things. No, it takes extraordinary time and patience.
2: Yeah, no, I was actually doing an essay on some of USAID's past engagements in the Middle East. And one thing that was really interesting was that it turns out, actually, even though we've spent like a lot of money in the middle East, like our foreign aid isn't always directly correlated with how much of a perception the local communities end up uh, feeling to, uh, like positive perception the local communities end up feeling with the u s so it's like a very tricky balance um, you know wanting to promote democracy while still kind of also kind of promoting your soft power as the u s and sometimes you know these solutions or these goals don't really go hand in hand we're promoting democracy but. We- like the, we're not exactly able to foster that positive perception of the US that we want to. Um, and uh, along with that, one thing I was just thinking about is you know, democracy has always been a core value of the US. And after the Cold War, it seemed to many that it was like the, you know, the final triumph of democracy. But kind of now in the 21st century, we've seen perhaps the rise of China or even uh, the popularity of Singapore in more authoritarian models. Um, with that, and you mentioned that, you know, democracy doesn't always have to come in, like, the American form of a democratic republic, but how can the U.S. kind of continue its, um, mission to promote democracy around the world, given, like, these new alternate, alternate models that have, you know, caused some nations or some people to now believe that democracy isn't always, perhaps, the best model for every single government?
3: Yeah. Now yeah, it's a great question. So I think it's important to understand what I th- what I think is going on right now um again because I like to read big trends, big trend lines. Uh we are just in my opinion we're just at the beginning of a rejection to globalization and Uh, You know, we've only had globalization really in place for the past 30 years, maybe. And by globalization, I mean, you know, the ability to have instant global communications um, and the interconnectivity of of economies and industry. And, you know, frankly, the rise of empowered individuals and companies and um, social media and other things that have made the necessity of governments um, less or they've reduced the necessity of governments. I mean, you, you're starting to see social media platforms, companies, um, and as I was saying, even individuals who are providing in disasters or providing um, services and things that normally you would think of a government providing. So, you know, the nation state, it, I think it is under, I hate to use the word threat because I, I don't, believe that the nation state is necessarily the only form of government in the world. But um, a lot of people around the world have viewed the result or the the constant impact of globalization as homogenizing. So um, people who have a very strong sense of their own identity, whether it's based on an ethnicity, a race, a religion, a nationality, a gender, whatever it is, um, their own self-identity is threatened by what they see as homogenization occurring because of this more globalized environment that we live in. And that's why I think you're seeing a lot of this pushback and the rise of populist governments, nationalism, um, supremacist movements of all types, uh, the rejection of um, gender diversity. I mean, there's like all of it, right? It's people feel their identities are an existential threat by, in many ways, the, um, the impact of globalization. So uh, I think with that, you know, I, I remember um, talking to some folks about this at a conference on migration and immigration and just saying, you know, look, when, you know, I have five children. Every time I brought a new kid home, um, the kids that I already had were like, oh, man, another one of those, you know, another baby. That means less of time for mom and dad, less food. My toy's getting broken. It's going to be noisier in the house. It's going to be smelly, blah, 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 blah. So yeah, it was disruptive and it did take away. It absolutely took away, but it also added and it created a more dynamic, a richer tapestry in our family. Um, it created more love. Um, it, it just created something very different and we all grew to embrace it and love it. So it's really that like you either reject and fear or you embrace and you love, right? And people choose one or the other. Um, the United States used to You know, when I was growing up on Schoolhouse Rock, we used to have the Great American Melting Pot. And um, the National Security, you know, NSC 68, which is the National Security Council paper number 68, I would urge you to take a look at it. It is the articulation of the containment strategy. And in that document, it describes the purpose of America as a beacon of freedom. It describes American um, ideals in such a way that it, it 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 calls out our strength, as our willingness to embrace diversity, our willingness to embrace ideas that were antithetical to our own, our willingness to tolerate that so much so that we would lay down our life to protect someone whose ideas are different from our own. Um, in the National Security Council paper number sixty eight said compulsion is the negation of freedom. So when you think about that, every single time we think we have to compel people to do something, compel people to stand during the national anthem, compel people to wear a certain, you know, clothing, compel people to behave in a certain way when they're, you know, dancing in the streets, whatever it is, that is not freedom. That is totalitarianism. Um and I think you know, it's, it's a matter of making that choice to peoples around the world crystal clear. It's so like I said before, self-determination is an all or nothing concept. You can't choose self-determination for some people and self-determination doesn't belong to other people. It doesn't work that way. Um, same is true for, in my opinion, democracy. Democracy is a hard thing to embrace and citizenship is extremely difficult but if you are not caring about the freedom and the justice and the equal rights of someone whose ideas you hate, you're not a democratic person. You're a, you're not a, and I mean that not in a partisan way. I mean, you are not a a promoter of democracy because that's what democracy asks for.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, also, yeah, like, that makes like a a lot of sense and like the way you describe it with like the analogies with your kids is like super helpful again similar to your book um hopefully our audience likes that as well um but going back to what you said about how like there's like this instant like global communication today and like a global economy and just about globalization in general um and in your book you wrote that A president can no longer have two different conversations one with the American public and one with the rest of the world Um, and that's like one of the difficulties with intelligence work uh, today and like as you said as well you've been working in national security and intelligence research for three decades now Um, and you wrote this book like 12 years ago could you expand on like any other notable differences today versus when you first started working in intelligence work that uh, might make like work today more difficult or maybe even there's like benefits.
3: Yeah, no, I think, um, yeah, there are a lot of differences (laughs) from 12 years, but um, to me, one of them is is just, um, I do think when I wrote that book, we were still in an environment where people thought of influence as, um, as you were mentioning, Kelsey, I think, uh, soft power and um, understanding root causes for extremist beliefs and extremist activity as uh, a soft approach to things, almost too sympathetic. I think there's been some evolution um, of that thinking since then, not enough, but some so that we are understanding uh, looking at security, national or international security from this lens isn't weak, um, isn't uh, uh, being afraid. It's actually having the courage to understand. And that does take, I think, a lot of strength to be able to do that. I th- so I, th- I think we're going in a l- mostly in the right direction when it comes to that. Um, just not enough, not quickly enough. But I think the other thing is, um, you know, my, my personal sense, and, you know, obviously, because I watch terrorism and extremist trends mostly, and, you know, we're not over the, the Islamic extremist uh, terrorism trend by any stretch of the imagination. Um, At the same time, we're seeing, like I said before, this rise in a sense of existential threat to a lot of micro identities. Whenever you see that rise in sense of fear and threat, you're going to see more and more violence, more and more extremists who are willing to mobilize to violence. What's difficult with that one is, um, those are going to be people all around the world. There's not going to be borders here for this kind of extremism, as we're already seeing, like I mentioned, um, Racially and ethnic and gender extremists in the United States are no different from racial and ethnic and gender um, extremists that you're seeing in Australia and Europe and in other parts of the world. That becomes really tricky because with without borders, it's a it's a lot harder for us to collect information, you know, privacy rights um, on your own citizens and things like that, all of which are extremely important. But it means. We need to have a higher tolerance for extremist voices. Um, it means we need to understand the importance of cultivating embrace of diversity um, and diverse thinking or we're going to just constantly be at war with ourselves uh, so you know this is what I worry about more and more as we move into the future
2: So Emery and I actually um, wrote each each row one fun question or one that we were like personally really interested in while we were researching and my question actually fits straight into what you were just talking about how you know the islam extremist movement is by no stretch of the means over but it is kind of getting sidelined today for other it doesn't make the news as much i would say like now the rise of china is like starting to come up and like maybe populism um, like you said, the polarization of like perhaps the extreme left or the extreme right. So I guess my fun question that I thought of, and this is definitely a counterfactual question, so that by no means like feel pressured to like know the answer, but I guess just because you're obviously in like an expert, you know, in this field, I was just wondering what do you think is or will be the biggest national security threat that the U.S. faces in the upcoming decade?
3: Oh, that's easy. That is actually a very, I I'm, have a very strong conviction about that the biggest national security threat that we have always faced and will continue to face is us. And I'm not the first person to say this. Um, Abraham Lincoln said it when he was 28 years old. Um, he gave a speech called, it's called the Lyceum address. And again, another one of those things I'd urge you to read, but at 28 and, you know, 200 or, or 180 years ago, he said that, um, if destruction be our lot, we ourselves must be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we live we live together or die by suicide. So his point was at the time that there's no military or threat from anywhere outside of the United States of America that is as existential a threat to America as Americans are. So... If we're going to rip ourselves up and destroy our democracy, I mean, it's going to be us. It's not going to be somebody else. I don't care how hard Putin tries or anybody else. Um, They can exacerbate it, but we can control it. Only we can stop it. So we have that ability. We just have to realize it and do it.
0: Yeah, so I guess my fun question. um, We talked a lot about like about U.S. perception of, or sorry, about other countries' perceptions of the U.S. and even like our government's perception of itself. But I wanted to talk a little bit about, I guess, how um, people, like everyday people, perceive the CIA. Um, Your work as a CIA CIA analyst and 1993 report inspired the movie Zero Dark Thirty. And in your book, you say that despite what you read in novels or see in the movies, intelligence work and counterterrorism are not glamorous jobs. The vast majority of the day is spent literally slogging through data. Um, what glaring differences or possible similarities do you see between the movies and actual intelligence work? And do you think that these inaccuracies that lead, people's, lead people to have inaccurate perceptions of intelligence work might have negative impacts?
3: Yeah. Okay. So, great question, and I'm glad you asked it because it does. You know, anytime I can offer um, a little bit of insight into reality is always great opportunity for um, the entire intelligence community. First, I had no hand in inspiring Zero Dark Thirty. So, please, (laughs) that that is, you know, my my role in 1993 was finding Bin Laden the first time, not the last time. Um, So. Just to disabuse you of that notion to begin with but um you know it's important for people to remember that entertainment is entertainment (laughs) um movies are entertaining uh no matter how much of a kernel of truth uh stories are there are always entertainment you pay for a ticket it's entertainment uh tv shows same way i mean they have to take what might be um again some kernel of truth and sensationalize them in order for them to be entertaining to people if you if you watched the day in the life of an actual you know intelligence operative, whether it was somebody in the field or an analyst behind a desk, you, you'd die of boredom. So I think it's always important to remember that and um, I try to take all those films with a grain of salt just like I'm sure doctors feel the same way about medical shows and Detectives feel the same way about police shows and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, I think for the CIA in particular and for intelligence organizations, what's tricky is we're not that accessible to the public, right? You can go talk to a doctor and find out about how doctors really work. You can find out how about the, how the police department does its detective work. You can't really just walk into the CIA and say, hey, how do you do what you do? So I recognize that people aren't going to get as much exposure to that as, as you know, to help correct the perception. Um, the agency I know is doing a lot more public engagement through its, um, you know, its its various programs, which is awesome. But in uh, all of the intelligence community, with the ODNI, you know, have a lot of they have public websites and they do try to do educational programs. But they're, they're never going to be as cool or as fun as movies and TV. So what hurts, I think, is the perception that we wing it. <laughs> um, we do not wing <laughs> it. Um, we start with the Constitution and we end with the Constitution. And, and you know, I still, I still have on my desk after moving a h- hundreds of times, over 32 years the constitution that i was given when i swore my oath 32 years ago it's that important um so there is no winging it we have more rules and regulations and lawyers than you can possibly imagine and we want that so when you you, yes we have to be resourceful yes we have to think on our feet all of that is very true but we're doing it For the Constitution, that's what we swore our oath to, so we don't get to just do that like you see in the movies. I mean, the other thing is, um, you know, obviously I don't like the gender stereotypes that you typically deal with in in the movies um, or TV, for that matter. Um, That's something that you know the women in the intelligence community continue to work against. And, you know, we'll just, we'll have to, we'll just keep on doing it until people understand that the men and the women are not the way they are stereotyped. It's not fair to either, to any gender, so.
2: No, I think you're right. It's definitely really important to kind of get more accurate perceptions about what the work entails. I mean, just a bit jokingly, but definitely a lot of my friends, um, are interested in like joining the cia and they'll be very disappointed to find out that it isn't all james bond and fun um, But jokes aside uh, we do have two final questions that kind of do relate to this because uh which kind of just relates to you know not only pursuing a career in the cia or pursuing a career in national intelligence but also um kind of what it's like to be a woman in this Industry. A lot of our podcast listeners are, you know, IR majors, uh, women who are, you know, currently hoping to join the CIA or hoping to pursue a career in international relations. So, one question um, I think I'd love to hear your thoughts on is you wrote in your book that, you know, it's a gross generalization, um, but many women would probably agree that they define security and strength differently from men. And I really like the fact that you took the time to put in a lot of Um, kind of attention to the differences between men and women in this industry and like the unique perspectives that women can bring to the table. So just from your own experiences, what unique perspectives do you think your identity as a woman brought to your time um, as a national security analyst? And uh, additionally, just a second question, many people believe that there should be more women holding high positions in national security roles. Um, Do you agree and why or why not?
3: Okay, so let me answer the first question, and you may end up having to remind me about the second one, just because that was, that was pretty packed. Awesome, though, questions. The, the first part, um, there are two observations that I have. Um, I mean, there are obviously a lot of others, but the two biggest ones. Um, the first is, uh, you know, I am, um, I am a survivor of sexual assault, uh, a, a childhood sexual assault. So um, childhood sexual abuse, which is a long-term systemic thing to recover from. And, you know, when I look at how my male colleagues over the decades in particular have defined security, how security has been defined by default over millennia, it's all about physical security. It's the integrity of our borders and our buildings and our facilities and our infrastructure. Um, you know, this is what tanks and weapons and nuclear warheads are all about, right? Um, that's just not important to me. Um, I've had my integrity, my physical integrity, my personal integrity violated frequently. And, you know, and, and here I am. I'm a still a very secure person. I can promise you that. Um, so I think women understand a different form of security as the integrity of self and as you saw in my book i think again just like abraham lincoln the integrity of our democracy and of our ideals and our willingness to embrace and hold true to those even when they are threatened even when they're difficult even when it may cause um risk to us is far more important than our physical security um so uh, you know, I see a very different form of security altogether. What comes from that is the second point. I understand the importance of resilience um, over the importance of of not being attacked. Um, you can't be resilient if you haven't experienced trauma. So, in my mind, or you know, from my perspective having survived my own personal hell over and over again. um, And as a, as an ill-equipped child too, I'm, you know, I'm still sitting here as a very strong, competent female in a, in a tough world. Right. Um, It didn't define me. It didn't destroy me. It doesn't, it it isn't who I am or what I am. And I think America can do the same thing. um, If we let threats, define us, and we're always just about what we're countering and what we're against, um, then they've won. They've taken your integrity. They've taken your soul and the character of who and what you are as a nation. So to say building resilience is weak or defeatist to me is not only wrong, um, it's folly, and um, it's a luxury that maybe men have but women don't. So that's your first question. Your second question was uh, more women in national security.
2: Yeah, so in your book, you were talking about how, you know, the minister, uh, the secretary of the se- wait, let me get it real quick. The secretary of defense, secretary of Homeland security, secretary of veteran affairs, none of them have been held by women, right? Um, and I was just wondering like, should more women be holding these roles? And why do you think it's important that we do or don't?
3: Yeah, so absolutely. Um, again, kind of two two reasons behind that too. Um, number one, I believe that, <laughs> you know, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was asked how many women should be on the Supreme Court, she said nine. That's when we'll have enough, right? When there are nine. <laughs> so Why does that shock people, you know? It only shocks you because it's always been men. Um, When 10% of the governments in this world are run by women, 10%, we are 51% of the world's population. Um, There is no reason why we shouldn't be running 90% of the countries in the world. There's no reason, there's none. Um, Just because history hasn't recorded our way of dealing with conflict, our way of gathering resources rather than hoarding and or rather than protecting and defending them, because we haven't been in national security, doesn't mean we don't have the right to be in it. Um, we need to stop asking for an invitation. We don't need an invitation. We exist, and so we should. We should have our voice, and we should be here, engaged in this. So, absolutely, I think more women need to be in it, but not just in it. I think we need to be defining it redefining the way it has been defined based on the accident of history so you know just imagine if one day the world you know back in the neanderthal days decided that gatherers were more important than hunters we would be living in a very different world right now and maybe it would be just as screwed up i don't know but at least it would be more balanced so I, you know, I'm part of GirlSecurity.org, which you you probably um, know about. But if you don't, it's a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that is building a deliberate pipeline of young women into national security careers and fields. Um, we do educational programming from middle school all the way on up, and have mentorship because we believe we can't just wait. For women to decide they want to be in national security, we we need to get girls under you know from a very early age, just like you see with STEM, understanding that they have a role that they're needed as voices and leaders in national security. So um, we're building that very deliberate pipeline to do just
0: that. Yeah, um, we definitely agree with like that position and stance, and- know that a lot of our audience hopefully and our peers definitely like want their voices to be heard and want to be engaged in national security and like government in general um and so our final question to you is what recommendations or pieces of advice would you give any women who are interested in pursuing similar or the same career path to you yeah
3: um number one believe you can do it so important to believe in yourself, particularly when maybe nobody else believes in you. I mean, I, you know, as I said, I didn't have it quite so easy. And I, I had to keep on like tapping into my own self as my own mentor and guide and pull myself along. Um, if you look up to leadership in national security, whether it's the military, you know, cyber, whether it's food security, health security, whatever it is, and you look at all the forms of Security that make our nation what it is, um, and you don't see a woman, or you don't see a person of color, or you don't see someone who has the same history as you in terms of gender fluidity or anything else, doesn't matter. Don't think that that's going to stop you. You got to be in there. You got to get in there and be that person. You know, be your own mentor, be your own role model, be your own hero. The second thing is, I you know, I would say network. You know obviously network um again girl security offers that there are other organizations out there there's nat nat sec squad or uh, nat nat sec girl squad there are lots of other organizations for minorities for girls for women um and you know use them don't ever think that you are a burden to someone who is a senior or seasoned you know expert in a field i mean we we want to retire we want to turn this over to you. Um, So it's never, you know, for me, it's never a burden when somebody says, you know, Hey, professor, or, you know, anything I, it it makes us happy. So don't ever think that you're a burden. Um, So those are the two things that I would say, don't, you know, believe in yourself, be your own leader, be your own hero. Don't give up. Don't ever give up.
0: Thank you so much to Gina Bennett for agreeing to be a guest on our podcast. Like she said, we can't just walk into the CIA and expect someone to let us interview them. So we really want to thank her for giving us this unique and eye-opening experience. And thank you guys for sticking around and listening to this podcast. And we hope to see you next time.